On Champagne and Murder, Please, we talk about some sensitive topics not meant for younger audiences, so listener discretion is advised. Tonight, for our champagne choice, it comes from Tara, and it's a free exonet, Cordon Negro Brut, and it can be found at Jewel for about $12.99. For today's shout out, I'm going to hand it over to my husband. I don't usually partake in this, but one of my childhood friends' husband was in a deer first motorcycle accident and is fighting for his life. Any prayers, thoughts, or whatever you believe in would be greatly appreciated. We'll keep you updated on any developments. So for today, I have two stories for you, since Mark is not able to join me. Um, My first story is about a woman named Georgia Tam. My sources are from Insider.com, and it's an article by Erica Celeste. For 20 years, a Tennessee baby thief kidnapped more than 5,000 children from the streets, hospitals, and shanty towns of Memphis. Now 70 years later, survivors of her house of horrors are confronting the past. No one knows or perhaps cares to remember the exact day the Tennessee Children's Home Society in Memphis closed. What is known is that 72 years ago, in late November or early December, the place workers later called a house of horrors closed its doors for good, thankfully. Shutting the Children's Home Society down may have cast it into obscurity, but by then the home had already permanently damaged and changed the lives of more than 5,000 children. The unimaginable horror of the place still reverberates today, not because many of the children were orphaned or abused, but because they were stolen. The little-known story caught the attention of fiction author Lisa Wingate when she saw a late-night episode of Deadly Women on Discovery Channel about the children's home matriarch Georgia Tam. I wondered if it was all true or sensationalized for TV, Wingate told Insider, so I started digging. I had to know more. The result was Before We Were Yours, a fictional account of the orphanage told through the eyes of 12-year-old Real Foss, released in 2017. The book stayed on top of the bestseller list for over a year. People would write or email and say, This book is about my mother, or I think I might be one of the stolen babies, Wingate said. For more than 20 years, Tan ran the Tennessee Children's Home Society, where she and an elaborate network of co-conspirators kidnapped and abused children to sell them off to wealthy adoptive parents at a steep profit. Her favorite scheme was to drive through impoverished neighborhoods picking out the prettiest children, then offer them rides in her shiny black luxury car. Once the children were in, they usually never saw their families again. Tan took advantage of the lack of regulation around adoption to perpetuate her scheme, relying on the desperation of would-be parents to keep them quiet. According to reports done after the home was closed, many children died while under Tan's care. Those who managed to survive are still grappling with Tan's unchecked cruelty and greed. In 2018, spurred by interest in her book, Wingate organized a Children's Home Society adoptee reunion with help from fellow author Judy Christie. This fall, many of the adoptees from the first event, along with several newly found adoptees, attended a second reunion. 
To tell the story of the Tennessee Children's Home Society in Georgia Tan, Insider spoke with several survivors of Tan's baby trafficking business, many of whom have spent a lifetime trying to figure out who they are. We also examined the Memphis Library's extensive archives on the Home Society and read contemporaneous reports from investigators who uncovered and documented the horrors there. Tan first tried her child-stealing scam at a Mississippi children's home, but she was run out of town. Beulah George, or Georgia Tan, was born in 1891 in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Named for her father, a powerful judge, she hoped to follow in his footsteps and practice law. Instead, her domineering father forbade it, and she instead pursued a career in social work, one of the few socially acceptable positions for a woman of her means. She first went to work in Mississippi, but she was soon fired for inappropriately removing children from impoverished homes without cause. She made her way to Texas, where it's believed she adopted her daughter, June, in 1922. Later, in 1943, she adopted Anne Atwood Hollinsworth, a woman believed to be Tan's longtime same-sex partner. It was common at the time for same-sex couples to use adult adoption as a means of transferring property or inheritance. Then, Tan moved on to Memphis, where her father used his political connections to secure a new job for her as an executive secretary at the Memphis branch of the Tennessee Children's Home Society in 1922. By 1929, she had staged a takeover and named herself executive director. Sally Brannon is one of the few Children's Home Society adoptees who still remembers Tan. She was a rounded lady who wore glasses and carried a little purse, Brandon told Insider. I remember her being a stern, severe woman. Brandon and her two brothers were separated and sold by Tan. With their blonde hair and blue eyes, the trio were perfect prey for Tan. She pocketed close to $2,700 in the deal, which would be nearly $40,000 in today's money. Tan's scheme coincided with a sharp increase in families looking to adopt kids. In the 1900s and 1910s, formalized adoptions were fairly rare, but in the 1920s, adoption began to be marketed as a shortcut to societal improvement. According to one ad from the National Home Finding Society, adopting would reduce divorces, banditry, murder, and control births, fill all the churches, and do real missionary work at home and abroad, exchanging immigrants for Americans and stopping some of the road leading to war. At the time, the theory of eugenics, that is, the controlling of the reproduction of genetically inferior people through sterilization, was popular. The movement claimed that people of better genetic endowment were subject to greater infertility. It became important in adoption not to just get babies out of the best places, but a campaign to expand the superiority of adoption was launched. This new outlook, along with the popularization of baby formula, helped Tan's baby trafficking business grow. Suddenly, non-nourishing mothers could easily afford to feed their babies. The demand for adoptable infants rose, especially among busy, successful women. Tan was calculated in her approach and targeted the rich and famous, who paid premium prices for their adopted children. Actors, authors, entertainers, including Dick Powell, June Allison, Lana Turner, Pearl S. Buck, Smiley Burnett, and New York City Governor Herbert Lehman, all adopted Tan babies. In 1947, Joan Crawford adopted twins Kathy and Cindy from Tan. A network of corrupt social workers, police officers, doctors, lawyers, and judges helped Tan get away with her scheme. Stealing children wasn't a small side business. 
During the 21 years Tan ran the Children's Home Society, it's believed that she made more than $1 million from taking and selling children. That'd be about $11 million in today's money. And she didn't do it alone. Tan's extensive child trafficking operation required connections, and she quickly linked up with E.H. Boss Crump, who ran a powerful Tennessee political machine. Crump offered Tan protections in exchange for kickbacks. To kidnap and traffic her victims, Tan paid off a network of social workers, police officers, doctors, and lawyers. Some kidnapped children from preschools, churches, and playgrounds for her. Kidnaps pray, kidnappers preyed on poor children and families who didn't have the means to fight back. Tan's co-conspirators were authority figures, people not to be contradicted. So children often went with them willingly. Sometimes Tan would approach families and offer medical or other help. Tan would tell parents she could get their children into a clinic at no cost, but if they came along as well, they'd be charged a large bill. In the era before internet and with few phones, Tan relied on her network of spotters. They alerted Tan to children on riverbanks, in shanty towns, or walking home from school. She drove up in her big black car and offered them rides. Tan was also in cahoots with a local judge who helped procure children, specifically from impoverished, single, or widowed mothers. One of her most high-profile co-conspirators was Judge Camille Kelly, who presided over the juvenile court in Shelby County, Tennessee, for 30 years. She had a stooge down in the welfare department when someone would apply for assistance. This person would get their name and get in touch with Camille Kelly, Robert Taylor, an investigator, said in a 1992 interview with 60 Minutes. In 1950, Taylor, a local lawyer, was asked by newly elected Governor Gordon Browning to do an in-depth investigation into Children's Home Society and Tan. Camille Kelly would send a deputy out to pick them up and award custody to Georgia Tan, he added. Tennessee law required children to be adopted in, a, in state for a fee of $7, which would be about $75 today. But Tan moved over her merchandise at $1,000 per head, $10,000 today. When the state finally investigated, the report on the Children's Home Society, the Browning Report, found that Tan conducted private adoptions and pocketed up to 90% of the fee. She would gouge prospective parents on everything from travel costs to home visits and attorney's fees. The report also detailed how children were then spirited away from the home society in the middle of the night to avoid detection by authorities who weren't in the know or others who might ask too many questions. Her nurses, quote-unquote, had regular circuits to New York and California, though she shipped to all U.S. states and Great Britain. Tan preyed on the poor. Norma Sue and her five siblings were kidnapped from the yard of their river shanty in January 1943. Tan had pulled up in her shiny black Packard and asked the children if they wanted to go for a ride. A matronly woman, she appeared non-threatening. They were poor children who had maybe never even seen a car, Norma Sue's daughter Peggy Konitzer ad added. Tan had been tipped off. The kids were home alone. Their mother was in the hospital. My mother was eight years old when it happened. She knew her name and family, Virginia Williamson, another of Norma Sue's daughters, said. Norma Sue and her siblings stayed at the Home Society for three months, where they were exploited as free labor. Basically, she and her sister had to run and fetch and take care of the babies, change diapers, stuff like that. Norma Sue and her twin sister were the only siblings to stay together. They were adopted out to a family in Philadelphia. Mom was told by the woman who met them that she was their new mother. She said, no, you're not. 
From that moment on, Mom refused to be part of her new family, Williamson added. By the time Norma Sue and her sister were in Philadelphia, Tan had moved on to other victims. Tan often made up backstories for the children to make them more appealing to prospective parents. Elaborate backstories were added to stolen children's files to make them more marketable. Their files said they came from good homes with very attractive young mothers. Fathers were described as intelligent and often in medical school. Tan told Norma Sue's adoptive parents that she and her sister were younger than they were, six years old, to make them more desirable. To make them difficult to trace, she often changed children's ages and renamed them before adoption. Tan also knew how to capitalize on opportunities in the adoption market. Few agencies adopted to Jewish families. Tan saw her chance. A few pen strokes turned a Southern Baptist child into a baby from a good Jewish family. And as Children's Home Society scandal was exposed, the scenario played out in the adoption records over and over again. Debbie Branco, adopted under the name Catherine Shredder, was shipped to her new family in New Jersey when she was only days old. I went to Hebrew school, the whole thing, Branco told insiders, but later found out I'm not Jewish. Who knows what I am? If parents, biological or adoptive, ask too many questions about children, Tan threatened to have them arrested or the child removed. She was known for repossessing children whose adoptive parents couldn't make full payments on time, and she wasn't above blackmailing customers for more money later. Often she would return to adoptive parents months later and say relatives of the child had come around asking for the baby's return. But for a hefty fee, she had lawyers who could make the situation go away. She preyed on desperate women, exploiting their sense of shame. Tan was savvy about her child trafficking business and responsive to the demands of the market. Because many families were interested in babies only, she concentrated her efforts on procuring infants, though she wasn't above kidnapping older children to fill out her inventory. Homes for unwed mothers, welfare hospitals, and prisons were targeted. Doctors working with Tan told new mothers that their babies had died during birth. Those children were, quote-unquote, buried at no cost to the families. Jean Tapia, who eventually became a NASCAR driver, had a child taken by Tan's network. While he was fighting in World War II, his son was stolen moments after birth. It would take Jean and his wife Francine 47 years to eventually be reconnected to their son Robert. Other mothers were coerced into signing their children away while still under sedation from labor. Tan preyed on women's desperation, their poverty, and their sense of shame. If they were unsedated and tried to hold on to the babies after the baby was born, then Georgia Tan would step in and say, Well, you don't want people in your hometown to know about you and your pregnancy, do you? Robert Taylor, a lawyer who investigated the Tennessee Children's Home Society scandal for Governor Gordon Browning, said in his 1992 60 Minutes interview, By the 1930s, as a result of Tan's scam, Memphis had the highest infant mortality rate in the U.S. We found that on many occasions, babies had been taken only a few hours old, placed in nursing homes in and about Memphis, where they were without medical care. Taylor spent more than a year working on a 240-page report for the governor about the Children's Home Society. He spoke with countless child welfare experts, psychologists, and pediatricians who relayed the terrible truth of life at the children's home. Children placed in the Memphis home itself were not properly cared for, and many children died while there as a direct result of violations of physicians' orders. Some people started to raise a stink when a dysentery outbreak swept through the orphanage, author Lisa Wingate said. 
Taylor's report used the phrase babies dropping like flies when somewhere between 40 and 50 children died in 1945 in something like four months. Archives at the Benjamin Hooks Library in Memphis reveal some of the cruelties children were subjected to. Babies were kept in sweltering conditions, and some children were drugged to keep them quiet until they were sold. Other children were hung in dark closets, beaten, or put on starvation rations for weeks at a time. Drug addicts and pedophiles were hired to watch over them. According to The Baby Thief, The Untold Story of Georgia Tan, the baby seller who corrupted adoption, sexual abuse was a common occurrence at the home. Yes, sexual abuse at the hands of Georgia Tan was very true, and it was presented as your favor, said one adoptee who was five years old when she lived there. I remember being told to sit in her lap. She continued, I keep trying to block it all out, but it keeps coming. It's caused me a lot of problems. You won't find a whole lot of healthy adults who went through there. Back then, every boy in the orphanage got molested, one adopter said, and pointed to male caretakers as typical perpetrators. Tan was brutally unsparing in her cruelty. Former Home Society employees revealed to Taylor that if an infant deemed too weak, it might be left in the sun to die. If a child had a congenital disability or was considered too ugly or too old to be of use, Tan had people get rid of them. Many were buried on the property, though about 20 children were buried in an unmarked plot of land within Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. The children's deaths did little to stop Tan's baby adoption juggernaut. Tan toured the country, lecturing on adoption, employing the language of eugenics. She told the likes of Eleanor Roosevelt and President Harry Truman that adopted children turned out better because of the selective process, in which poor children would be remade into a higher type. Bolstered by her popularity, Tan grew increasingly audacious. She placed ads in newspapers featuring children with titles like Yours for the Asking and They'd Like to Be Your Christmas Gift. Tan created a baby catalog to help prospective parents choose the perfect child for an ever-growing price tag. In the 1940s, Tan developed a new publicity stunt. They would raffle 20 or 30 babies off every year at the Christmas baby giveaway in the newspaper, Wingate said. How did anyone think that was all right? For $25, about $350 today, purchasers could buy as many raffle tickets as they liked. Tan pocketed thousands of dollars that ticket holders assumed went to the Home Society and had to give away just a fraction of her merchandise in the process. After more than 20 years, Tan's adoption scam was shut down. Tan's baby-selling scheme carried on unabated for over two decades, but in 1949, things took a turn. Tennessee elected a new governor, Gordon Browning. Weekend E.H. Crump, Tan's crony, lost his hold on Memphis politics. On September 12, 1950, Governor Browning held a press conference during which he revealed Tan and her network managed to amass more than $1 million from her child-selling scheme, nearly $11 million in today's money. But Tan was never held accountable. Three days later, she died at home after slipping into a mysterious coma from untreated uterine cancer. On November 11, 1950, Judge Camille Kelly, who had worked so closely with Tan, quietly resigned. It took until late November or early December to find safe homes for the remaining children. Somewhere in the waning days of 1950, the doors to Tennessee's Children's Home Society were closed for good. No one was ever prosecuted for their roles in the black market baby ring. In the spring of 1951, Robert Taylor submitted his report. To protect lawmakers and their influential friends from prosecution, the Tennessee legislature sealed all adoption records. 
Adoptees of the Home Society needed a court order to get their birth records. The process was audrous and arcane. In the 1990s, Marion Denny Glad, a historian and co-founder of the adoption nonprofit Right to Know, whose three cousins disappeared in the adoption system, came forward to help the Tennessee Children's Home Society adoptees. She had access to a lot of records and a lot of people. The judges, the lawyers, they were still alive. Adoptee Sally Brandon said, referring to Glad, she put together an amazing collection of information. Brandon had already uncovered her birth name, Sue Nell. She knew her brothers had been sold as twins to a California couple, but Glad told her she didn't know the whole story. Brandon paid the $150 processing fee. It was amazing what I got back, she said. Brandon learned her father was a sharecropper who was murdered when she was 14 months old. The man she remembered as an abusive father was her mother's second husband. She also received photos of her parents, their marriage license, and health information. Tennessee Children's Home Society child Matt Lucas never found his birth family. He felt too guilty while his parents were alive. Now, at 84, he doubts there's anyone left to find. I'll be buried at the feet of my adoptive mother, but I'd like to find my first mother's grave, Lucas said. I'd like to stand there and let her know I turned out all right. What strikes me is that the adoptees have different situations, but they also have a lot of common threads, author Judy Christie told Insider. The need to connect with their families, their lifelong feeling that something was missing, the joy of coming together here in Memphis with other people who understand what they went through at the hands of Georgia Tan. The past year, Wingate and Christie published a nonfiction account of the reunion before and after. People in this day and age are disconnected in many ways. We all yearn for connection. We yearn for family connections and community. I think this story speaks to people overcoming and connecting, Christie said. Many families never found each other again. Archive documents at Benjamin Hook's library mention that Tan was fond of cremation because it left no evidence. While no one knows where many of Tan's victims were buried, many adoptees and their families take comfort in a small memorial in Memphis Elwood Cemetery erected in 2015. The memorial inscription reads, in part, in memory of all the hundreds who died under the cold, hard hand of Tennessee Children's Home Society. Their final resting place unknown, their final peace a blessing. Victims' stories remain in the DNA for generations. Adoptee Norma Sue died a few years ago. Last year, her daughters brought their mother's ashes back to be scattered on the banks of the Mississippi, close to where she was stolen so long ago. Her abduction and time at the Children's Home Society, her daughter said, had so traumatized her mother that she became chronically depressed. By 15, Norma Sue was pregnant. By 22, she had five children and was divorced. She moved frequently and institutionalized her own children, repeating the cycle. I feel rather strongly that people should know this doesn't stop with the victims. The story goes on and on and remains in the DNA of the generations, Virginia Williamson said. Norma Sue's children found some peace in cousin Jake Mafori, who told them their mother's family never stopped looking for them. I'm hearing from people all over the world who they are to this day still fighting very similar things. Wingate said, One of our takeaways from all this should be that children are still monetized and we have to be the one on the lookout for situations where money takes precedence over the welfare of kids. We now know the effects of something like this can last lifetimes. My second story for today is about Fritz Harman. My source is Wikipedia. 
Friedrich Heinrich Karl Harman, or Fritz, was a German serial killer known as the Butcher of Hanover, the Vampire of Hanover, and the Wolfman, who committed the sexual assault, murder, mutilation, and dismemberment of at least 24 young men and boys between 1918 and 1924 in the city of Hanover. Fritz Harman was born on October 25, 1879, the sixth and youngest child born to Joanna and Ollie Harman. Fritz was a quiet child with few friends his own age or gender and who seldom socialized with any children outside of school with the exceptions of his siblings. From an early age, Harmon's behavior was noticeably effeminate, and he was known to shun boys' activities, instead playing with his sister's dolls and dressing in their clothes. He also developed a passion for both needlework and cookery, and would develop a close relationship with his mother who spoiled her youngest child. Reportedly, Harmon's father married his mother when she was 41 years old and 7 years his senior, largely due to her wealth and the substantial dowry their marriage would eventually bring him. Harmon Sr. was known to be argumentative and short-tempered, who, through several affairs he conducted throughout his marriage, would contract syphilis in his later years. Despite his being an authoritarian who had little time for his children and a notorious womanizer, Harmon's parents remained together until his mother's death in April 1901. In 1886, Harmon began his schooling, where he was noted by teachers to be a spoiled and mollycoddled child who was prone to daydreaming. Although his behavior at school was noted to be exemplary, his academic performance was below average, and Harmon had to repeat a school year twice. On one occasion, when he was about eight years old, Harmon was molested by one of his teachers, although he never discussed this incident in detail. Harmon grew into a trim, physically strong youth. With his parents' consent, he finished his schooling in 1894. Upon leaving school, he briefly obtained employment as an apprentice locksmith in Neuf-Richac, now part of France, before opting at age 15 to enroll in military academy in the town of Brichac. His military training began on April 4, 1895. Harmon initially adapted to military life and performed well as a trainee soldier. However, after five months of military service, he began to suffer periodic lapses of consciousness, which, although initially described by a medical professional as being sudden signs of anxiety neurosis, would subsequently be diagnosed as being equivalent to epilepsy in October 1895. The following month, Harmon discharged himself from the military and returned to Hanover, where he briefly worked in a cigar factory his father had established in 1888. At age 16, Harmon committed his first known sexual offenses, all of which involved young boys whom he would lure to secluded areas, typically cellars, before proceeding to sexually abuse them. He was first arrested for committing offenses of this nature in July 1896. Following further offenses, the Division for Criminal Matters opted to place Harmon in a mental institution in the city of Heidelsheim in February 1897. Although briefly transferred to a Hanover hospital for a psychiatric evaluation, he would be certified as being incurably deranged and unfit to stand trial by a psychologist named Gert Schmalfub. Schmalfub ordered Harmon to be confined at a mental institution indefinitely. He was returned to the institution on May 28, 1897. Seven months later, in January 1898, Harmon escaped the mental institution, and with apparent assistance from his mother, he fled to Zurich in Switzerland. 
Here he lived with a relative of his mother and obtained employment as a handyman in a shipyard. Harmon remained in Zurich for 16 months before he returned to Hanover in April 1899. Early the following year, he seduced and subsequently became engaged to a woman named Erna Lowert, who soon became pregnant with his child. In October 1900, Harmon received notification to perform his compulsory military service. On October 12, 1900, Harmon was deployed to the Alsatian city of Colmar to serve in the No. 10 Rifle Battalion. Throughout his service, he earned a reputation among his superiors as an exemplary soldier and excellent marksman, and he would later describe this period of service as being the happiest of his entire life. After collapsing while on exercise with his battalion in October 1901, Harmon began to suffer dizzy spells and was subsequently hospitalized for over four months. He was later deemed unsuitable for military service and work and was discharged on July 28, 1902. Discharged from the military under medical terms described as being probable dementia precox, Harmon was awarded a monthly pension of 21 gold marks. Upon his discharge, Harmon returned to live with Erna in Hanover, briefly working again in his father's cigar factory. However, he soon filed a maintenance lawsuit against his father, citing that he was unable to work due to the ailments noted by the military. Harmon's father successfully contested the suit and the charges were dropped. The following year, a violent fight between father and son resulted in Harmon's father himself unsuccessfully initiating legal proceedings against his son citing verbal death threats and blackmail as justification to have his son return to a mental institution. These charges were dropped due to a lack of corroborating evidence. Nonetheless, Harmon was ordered to undertake a psychiatric examination on May, in May of 1903. This examination was conducted by Dr. Andre, who concluded that, although morally inferior, Harmon was not mentally unstable. With financial assistance from his father, Harmon and his fiancée opened a fishmongery. Harmon himself br briefly attempted to work as an insurance salesman before officially being classified as disabled and unable to work. As a result, his monthly pension was slightly increased. The same year, his fiancée, while pregnant with his child, terminated their engagement after he accused her of having an affair with a student. As the fishmongery was registered in her name, Irma simply ordered her husband to leave the premises. For the next decade, Harmon primarily lived as a petty thief, burglar, and con artist. Although he did occasionally obtain legitimate employment, he invariably stole from his employers or their customers. Beginning in 1905, he served several short prison sentences for offenses such as larceny, embezzlement, and assault. On one occasion, when working legitimately as an invoice clerk, Harmon became acquainted with a female employee with whom he later claimed to have robbed several tombstones and graves between 1905 and 1913. He was never charged for the, with these offenses. Consequently, Harmon spent the majority of the years between 1905 and 1912 in jail. In late 1913, Harmon was arrested for burglary. A search of his home revealed a hoard of stolen property linking him to several other burglaries. Despite protesting his innocence, Harmon was charged with and convicted of a series of burglaries and frauds. He was sentenced to five years imprisonment for these offenses. Due to compulsory conscription resulting from the outbreak of World War I, Germany saw a shortage of available domestic manpower. In the final years of his prison sentence, Harmon was permitted to work throughout the day in the grounds of various manor houses near the town of Rendsburg, with instructions to return to the prison each evening. 
Upon his release from prison in April 1918, he initially moved to Berlin before opting to return to Hanover, where he briefly lived with one of his sisters before renting a single-room apartment in late August 1918. The years following the loss of World War I saw an increase in poverty, crime, and black market trading in the Weimar Republic. According to Harman, he was struck by the poverty of the German nation as a result of the loss the nation had suffered in World War I. Through his initial efforts to both trade and purchase stolen property at Hanover Central Station, Harmon established several criminal contacts with whom he could trade in contraband property, and he immediately reverted to the criminal life he had lived before his 1913 arrest. Despite police knowledge that Harmon was both a known criminal and a known homosexual, he gradually began to establish a relationship with law enforcement as an informer. Largely as a means of redirecting the attention of the police from himself in his own criminal activities and to facilitate his access to young males. By 1919, Harmon is known to have regularly patrolled Hanover Station and to have provided police with information relating to the city's extensive criminal network. With the cooperation of several police officials, Harmon devised a ruse whereby he would offer to fence or store stolen property at his premises, then pass this information to police who would then raid his property at agreed times and arrest these contacts. To remove any suspicion as to his treachery reaching the criminal fraternity, Harmon himself would be arrested in these raids. Moreover, on numerous occasions he is known to have performed citizen's arrests upon commuters for offenses such as traveling on forged documents. As a result of these activities, police began to rely on Harmon as a reliable source of information regarding various criminal activities in Hanover, and he was allowed to patrol the station largely at will. Between 1918 and 1924, Harmon committed at least 24 murders, although he suspected of murdering a minimum of 27. All of his victims were males between the ages of 10 and 22, the majority of whom were in their mid to late teens. The victims were lured back to one of three addresses in which Harmon is known to have resided throughout those years. He is known to have killed upon the promise of assistance, accommodation, work, or under the pretense of arrest. At Harmon's apartment, the victim was typically given food and drink before Harmon bit into his Adam's apple, often as he was strangled. Often this caused the victim to die of asphyxiation. But on several occasions, Harmon bit completely through his victim's Adam's apple and trachea. Harmon referred to the act of biting through his victim's neck as his love bite. All of Harmon's victims were dismembered before their bodies were discarded, usually in the Lena River. Although the dismembered body of his first known victim had simply been buried, and the body of his last victim had been thrown into a lake located at the entrance of Herrenhausen Gardens, Harmon typically kept his victim's personal possessions for himself or for his lover, Hans Granz, or they were sold on the black market through criminal contacts both men had established at Hanover Central Station. However, the personal possessions of some victims were sold to legitimate retailers. In several instances, both Harmon and Granz gave possessions belonging to various victims to acquaintances as gifts. Following Harmon's arrest, rumors circulated that Harmon ate the flesh of his victims or sold it on the black market as pork or horse meat. Although no evidence was ever produced to confirm these theories, Harmon was known to be an active trader in contraband meat, which was invariably boneless, diced, and often sold as ground meat. When asked where he obtained the meat, Harmon sometimes said he had gotten it from a butcher named Carl. 
Harmon initially resided in a hotel before he and Granz lodged with a middle-class family. Harmon's first known victim was a 17-year-old runaway named Friedel Roth. When Roth disappeared on September 25, 1918, his friends told police he was last seen with Harmon, who at the time of his first known murder resided in a single-room apartment at 24 Selestraub. Under pressure from Roth's family, police raided Harmon's apartment on October 1918, where they found their informer in the company of a semi-naked 13-year-old boy. He was charged with both sexual assault and battery of a minor and sentenced to nine months imprisonment. Harmon later said to detectives that when they searched his apartment, the head of Friedel Roth was stowed behind his stove wrapped in newspaper. Harmon avoided serving his sentence throughout 1919. That October, he met an 18-year-old youth named Hans Granz, who had run away from his home in Berlin following an argument with his father. Granz had slept rough in and around Hanover Station for approximately two weeks selling old clothes in and around the station to earn enough money to simply eat before he encountered Harmon. In his subsequent confessions to police, Granz stated, although his sexual orientation was heterosexual, he himself initiated contact with Harmon, with the intention of prostituting himself. Having heard of Harmon's homosexuality through acquaintances he had established in Hanover, Harmon himself stated following his arrest that he viewed Granz as being like a son to him, and adding that he pulled him out of the ditch and tried to make sure he didn't go to the dogs. How kind of him. Shortly after their initial acquaintance, Harmon invited the youth to move into his apartment, and Granz became Harmon's lover and criminal accomplice. According to Harmon, although he was smitten with Granz, he gradually became aware the youth manipulated and occasionally mocked him. A few times, Granz was evicted after heated arguments only for Harmon to plead with him to come back. Despite the manipulation Harmon endured at the hands of his accomplice, he later claimed to tolerate the capitalization as he craved Granz's companionship and affection, adding, I had to have someone I meant everything to. Harmon served the nine-month prison sentence imposed in 1918 for sexual assault and battery between March and December 1920. Upon his release, he again regained the trust of the police and again became an informer. Harmon initially resided in a hotel before he and Granz lodged with a middle-class family. Through criminal contacts, Harmon became aware of a vacant ground-floor apartment located at Neustraub, the apartment was located in a densely populated old house located along the Lena River. Harmon secured a letting agreement with the landlady, ostensibly to use the property for storage purposes. He and Granz moved in on July 1, 1921. In 1923, Harmon's subsequent victims largely consisted of young male commuters, runaways, and occasionally male sex workers, whom he would typically encounter in or around Hanover's Central Railway Station. The second murder Harmon is known to have committed occurred on February 12, 1923. The victim was a 17-year-old pianist named Fritz Frank, whom Harmon encountered at Hanover Central Station invited to his Neustraub residence, where he introduced the youth to Hans Granz and two female acquaintances, one of whom was Granz's female lover. According to Granz's lover, that evening Granz whispered in her ear, Hey, he's going to be trampled on today. The following day, both these acquaintances returned to Harmon's apartment where they were informed by Harmon that Frank had traveled to Hamburg. Speculation remains as to Grand's knowledge of Harmon's intentions towards Frank when he made this comment to the two female acquaintances. According to Harmon, following this murder, Grand's arrived unannounced at his apartment where he observed Frank's nude body lying upon Harmon's bed. 
Grounds had then simply looked at him and asked, When shall I come back again? Five weeks after the murder of Frank on March 20th, Harmon encountered a 17-year-old commuter named Wilhelm Schultz at Hanover Station. Schultz had been traveling to work when he encountered Harmon. No human remains identified as belonging to Schultz were ever found, although most of his clothing was in the possession of Harmon's landlady, Elizabeth Engel, at the time of his arrest. Two more victims are known to have been murdered at Neustrab before Harmon vacated the apartment in June. 16-year-old Roland Hutch, who disappeared on May 23rd after informing a close friend he intended to run away from home to join the Marines, and 19-year-old Hans Sonnefield, who disappeared on or about May 31st and whose distinctive yellow overcoat Harmon is known to have worn for years after the youth's murder. On June 9, 1923, Harmon moved into a single-room attic apartment at Rote Rheim. Two weeks after moving into this address on June 25, Ernest Einberg, the 13-year-old son of Harmon's neighbor, disappeared running an errand for his father. His school cap and braces would be found in Harmon's apartment following his arrest. Two months later, on August 24, an 18-year-old office clerk named Heinrich Straub was reported missing by his aunt with whom he lived. Many of his belongings would also be found in Harmon's apartment. His murder would be followed one month later by the murder of a 17-year-old named Paul Bronschewski, who disappeared en route to the city of Bochum. Having worked with his uncle in Saxony throughout the summer, subsequent police inquiries suggested Bronschewski had likely alighted the train at Hanover, where he evidently encountered Harmon. Brown Schuweski's jacket, knapsack, trousers, and towel would all be found in the possession of Harmon following his arrest. Harmon is next known to have killed on or about September 30, 1923. The victim was 17-year-old Richard Graff, who last informed his family he had met an individual at Hanover Station who knows of a good job for me. Two weeks later, on October 12, a 16-year-old Gerdon youth named Willem Erdner failed to return home from work. Subsequent inquiries by Erdner's parents revealed the youth became acquainted with Detective Fritz Honerbrock, a pseudonym used by Harmon, shortly before his disappearance. Both Harmon and Grenz subsequently sold Erdner's bicycle on October 20th. Within a week of having sold his bicycle, Harmon killed two further victims, 15-year-old Herman Wolfe, who disappeared from Hanover Station, and 13-year-old Heinz Brinkman, who is seen by a witness standing in the entrance to Hanover Station at 11 p.m. on October 27th, having missed his train home to the town of Klausthal. On November 10, 1923, a 17-year-old apprentice carpenter from the city of Dusseldorf named Adolf Hannipel disappeared from Hanover Station. He was seen by several witnesses sitting upon a trunk in the waiting room. These witnesses also positively identified Hans Granz in the company of Harmon, pointing towards the youth who shortly thereafter was observed walking towards the cafe in the company of these two men. One month later, on December 6th, 19-year-old Adolf Heinz disappeared. He had been seeking employment at the time of his disappearance. None of the human remains recovered were identified as belonging to Heinz, whom Harmon specifically admitted to dismembering, but denied killing. I don't know how that works. In subsequent court testimony, vehemently disputed by Granz, Harmon claimed he returned home to find Heinz's body, missing his signature love bite, lying naked on his bed with Granz and another criminal acquaintance named Hugo Witowski, stating that the youth was one of yours. 
Neither Harmon nor Grounds were convicted of Hines' murder due, con due to conflicting testimony. The first victim killed by Harmon in 1924 was 17-year-old Ernst Spiker, who disappeared on January 5th. Although subsequent trial testimony from a friend of Spiker indicated Harmon had become acquainted with this youth before his murder. Harmon stated he would simply have to assume this youth was one of his victims due to all the personal possessions being found in his or Grounds' possession following his arrest. Ten days later, Harmon killed a 20-year-old named Heinrich Koch, whom he is also believed to have been acquainted with prior to the youth's murder. The following month, Harmon is known to have killed two further victims, 19-year-old Willie Singer, who disappeared from the suburb of Linden Limmer on February 2nd, having informed his sister he was to travel with a friend, and 16-year-old Herman Spiker, who had last been seen on February 8th. Harmon is not known to have killed again until or about April 1st, when it is believed he killed an acquaintance named Herman Bach. Although cleared of this murder at trial, Harmon was in possession of Bach's clothing when arrested, and he is known to have given the youth suitcase to his landlady. Moreover, Harmon is known to have actively dissuaded several of Bach's acquaintances from reporting the youth missing. One week later, on April 8th, 16-year-old Alfred Hallgrief disappeared from Hanover Station, having run away from home in the town of Lurt on April 2nd. Hargreaves' murder would be followed nine days later by that of a 16-year-old apprentice named William Apel, whom Harmon encountered on his patrols of the Hanover Station. On April 26th, 18-year-old Robert Wetzel disappeared after borrowing 15 fennings from his mother, explaining he intended to visit a traveling circus. Inquiries made by the youth's parents revealed their son had accompanied an official from the railway station to the circus. Harmon himself would later state he killed Weitzel the same evening, and having dismembered the youth's body, had thrown the remains into the Lena River. Two weeks after the murder of Weitzel, Harmon killed a 14-year-old named Heinz Martin, who was last seen by his mother on May 9th and who is believed to have been abducted from Hanover Station. All his clothing was later found in Harmon's apartment. Surprise, surprise! Less than three weeks later, on May 26th, a 17-year-old traveling salesman from the town of Castle named Fritz Wittig, whom Harmon would later state he killed upon the insistence of Granz as he had worn a good new suit, Granz coveted, was dismembered and discarded in the Lena River. The same day Wittig is believed to have been killed, Harmon killed his youngest known victim, 10-year-old Friedrich Abling, who disappeared while truant from school. His murder would be followed less than two weeks later by that of 16-year-old Friedrich Koch, who was approached by Harmon on June 5th as he walked to college. Two acquaintances would later testify at Harmon's trial as they walked with Koch to college, Harmon approached Koch and tapped the youth on the boot with his walking stick and stated, Well, boy, don't you recognize me? Harmon killed his final victim, 17-year-old Eric DeVries, on June 14, 1924. DeVries encountered Harmon at Hanover Station. His dismembered body would later be found in a lake located near the entrance of the Herrenhausen Gardens. Harmon would confess it, had taken him four separate trips to carry DeVries' dismembered remains, carried in leather bags, which belonged to Friedrich, to the location that he had disposed of them. On May 17, 1924, two children playing near the Lena River discovered a human skull, determined to be that of a young male aged 18 and 20 and bearing evidence of knife wounds. 
Police were skeptical as to whether murder had been committed or whether the skull had been discarded in this location by grave robbers or placed there in a tasteless prank by medical students. Furthermore, police theorized the skull may have been discarded in the river at Alfred, which had recently experienced an outbreak of typhoid. Two weeks later, on May 29th, a second skull was found behind a mill race located close to the scene of the earlier discovery. This skull was also identified as having been that of a young male between age 18 and 20. Shortly thereafter, two boys playing in a field close to the village of Dorne discovered a sack containing numerous human bones. Two more skulls would be found on June 13th, one upon the banks of the Lena River, another located close to a mill in West Hanover. Each of the skulls had been removed from the vertebrae with a sharp instrument. One skull belonged to a male in his late teens, whereas the other belonged to a boy, estimated to have been aged between 11 and 13 years old. In addition, one of these skulls also bore evidence of having been scalped. For more than a year prior to these discoveries, rumors had circulated in Hanover about the fate of the sheer number of children and teenagers who had been reported missing in the city. The discovery sparked fresh rumors regarding missing and murdered children. In addition... Various newspapers responded to these discoveries and the resulting rumors by harking to the disproportionate number of young people who had been reported missing in Hanover between 1918 and 1924. On June 8th, several hundred Hanover residents converged close to the Lena River and searched both the banks of the river and the surrounding areas. Discovering a number of human bones, which were handed to the police, in response to these latest discoveries, police decided to drag the entire section of river which ran through the center of the city. In doing so, they discovered more than 500 further human bones and sections of bodies, many bearing knife striations, which were later confirmed by a court doctor as having belonged to at least 22 separate human individuals. Approximately half of the remains had been in the river for some time, whereas other bones and body parts had been discarded in the river more recently. Many of the recent and aged discoveries bore evidence of having been dissected, particularly at the joints. Over 30% of the remains were judged to have belonged to young males aged between 15 and 20. Suspicion for the discoveries quickly fell upon Harmon, who was known to both police and the criminal investigation department as a homosexual who had amassed 15 previous convictions dating from 1896 for various offenses including child molestation and sexual assault and the battery of a minor. Moreover, he had been connected to the 1918 disappearances of Friedel Roth and a 14-year-old named Herman Koch, who had disappeared weeks prior to Roth. Harmon was placed under surveillance. Being a trusted police informant, Harmon was known to frequent Hanover Central Station. As he was well known to many officers from Hanover, two young policemen were drafted from Berlin to pose as undercover officers and discreetly observe his movements. The surveillance of Harmon began on June 18, 1924. On the night of June 22nd, Harmon was observed by the two undercover officers prowling Hanover Central Station. He was soon observed arguing with a 15-year-old boy named Carl Fromm, then to approach the police and insist they arrest the youth on the charge of traveling upon forged documents. Upon his arrest, Fromm informed police that he had been living with Harmon for four days and that he had been repeatedly raped by his accuser, sometimes as a knife was held to his throat. Harmon was arrested the following morning and charged with sexual assault. Detectives searched the stove inside Harmon's attic room. Following his arrest, Harmon's attic apartment at Ross Rhine was searched. Harmon had lived in the single-room apartment since June 1923. The flooring, walls, and bedding within the apartment were found to be extensively bloodstained. 
Harmon initially attempted to explain this fact as a byproduct of his illegal trading in contraband meat. Various acquaintances and former neighbors of Harmon were also extensively questioned as to his activities. Many fellow tenants and neighbors of the various addresses in which Harmon lived since 1920 commented to detectives about the number of teenage boys they observed visiting his various addresses. Moreover, some had seen him leaving his property with concealed sacks, bags, or baskets, invariably in the late evening or early morning hours. Two former tenants informed police that in the spring of 1924, they had discreetly followed Harmon from his apartment and observed him discarding a heavy sack into the Lena River. The clothes and personal possessions found at Harmon's apartment and in the possession of his acquaintances were suspected as being the property of missing youths. All were confiscated and put on display at Hanover Police Station, with the parents of missing teenage boys from across Germany invited to look at the items. As successive days passed, an increasing number of items were identified by family members as having belonged to their sons and brothers. Harmon did initially attempt to dismiss these successive revelations as being circumstantial in nature, by explaining he acquired many of these items through his business of trading in used clothing, with other items being left at his apartment by youths with whom he engaged in sexual activity. The turning point came when on June 29th, clothes, boots, and keys found stowed at Harmon's apartment were identified as belonging to a missing 18-year-old named Robert Weitzel. A skull which had been found in the garden on May 20th, which was not initially connected with later skeletal discoveries, was identified as that of the missing youth. A friend of Weitzel identified the police officer, a police officer seen in the company of the youth on the day prior to his disappearance as Harmon. Confronted with this evidence, Harmon briefly attempted to bluster his way out of these latest and most damning pieces of evidence. When Weitzel's jacket was found in the possession of his landlady and he was confronted with various witnesses' testimony as to his destroying identification marks upon the clothing, he broke down and had to be supported by his sister. Faced with this latest evidence and upon the urging of his sister, Harmon confessed to raping, killing, and dismembering many young men in what he initially described as a rabid sexual passion between 1918 and 1924. According to Harmon, he never actually intended to murder any of his victims, but would be seized by an irresistible urge to bite into or through their Adam's apple, often as he manually strangled them, in the throes of ecstasy, before typically collapsing atop the victim's body. Only one intended victim had escaped from Harmon's apartment after he attempted to bite into his Adam's apple, although this individual is not known to have reported the attack to police. All of Harmon's victims' bodies were disposed of via dismemberment shortly after their murder, and Harmon was insistent that he found the act of dismemberment extremely unpleasant. Right. He had, he stated, been ill for eight days after his first murder. Nonetheless, Harmon was insistent that this passion at the moment of murder was invariably stronger than the horror of the cutting and the chopping, which would inevitably follow and would typically take up to two days to complete. To fortify himself to dismember his victims' bodies, Harmon would pour himself a cup of strong black coffee, then place the body of his victim upon the floor of his apartment and cover the face with cloth before first removing the intestines, which he would place inside a bucket. A towel would then be repeatedly placed inside the abdominal cavity to soak the collect collecting blood. He would then make three cuts between the victim's ribs and shoulders, then take hold of the ribs and push until the bones around the shoulders broke. The victim's heart lungs and kidneys would then be removed 
diced and placed into the same bucket that held the intestines before the legs and arms would be severed from the body. Harmon would then begin paring the flesh from the limbs and torso. This surplus flesh would be disposed of in the toilet or usually in a nearby river. The final section of the victim's bodies to be dismembered was invariably the head. After severing the head from the torso, Harmon would use a small kitchen knife to strip all flesh from the skull, which he would then wrap in rags and place face downwards upon a pile of straw and bludgeon with an axe until the skull is splintered, enabling him to access the brain. This he would also place in a bucket, which he would pour alongside the chopped up bones in the lena. Harmon was insistent that none of the skulls found in the lena belonged to his victims, and that the forensic identification of the skull of Robert Weitzel was mistaken, as he had almost invariably smashed his victims' skulls to pieces, the exceptions being those of his earliest victims, killed several years prior to his arrest, and that of his last victim, Eric DeVries. Although insistent that none of his murders were premeditated, investigators discovered much circumstantial evidence suggesting that several murders had been planned hours or days in advance, and that Harmon had both concocted explanations for his victims' disappearances and dissuaded acquaintances of his victims from filing missing persons reports with Hanover Police. Investigators also noted that Harmon would only confess to murders for which there existed evidence against him. On one occasion, Harmon stated, There are some victims you don't know about, but it's not those you think. When asked how many victims he killed, Harmon claimed somewhere between 50 and 70. The police, however, could only connect Harmon with the disappearance of 27 youths, and he was charged with 27 murders, some of which, he claimed, were committed upon the insistence of Hans Granz, who was arrested on July 8th and formally charged with being an accessory to murder one week later. On August 16, 1924, Harmon underwent a psychological examination at the Gotten Medical School on September 25th. He was judged competent to stand trial and returned to Hanover to await trial. The trial of Fritz Harmon and Hans Granz began on December 4, 1924. Harmon was charged with the murder of 27 boys and young men who had disappeared between September 1918 and June 1924. In 14 of these cases, Harmon, who insisted upon conducting his own defense, because that always works, acknowledged his guilt although he claimed to be uncertain of the identification of the remaining 13 victims upon the list of charges. Grounds pleaded not guilty to charges of being an accessory to murder in several of the murders. Initially, following a thorough security search, all members of the public were permitted to access the courtroom, although by the third day the judge excluded all spectators from the courtroom in opening days of the trial, as each murder was discussed in detail, due to ongoing carnal and gruesome nature of the revelations. The trial was one of the first major modern media events in Germany and received extensive international press coverage being described as the most result revolting case in German criminal history, varying sensational headlines in which Harmon was variously referred to by such titles as The Butcher of Hanover, The Vampire of Hanover, and The Wolfman, continuously appeared in the press. Although Harmon denied any premeditation in the crimes and remained adamant the ultimate reason he killed was a mystery to him, he readily confessed having killed 14 of the victims for whose murder he was tried, and to retaining and selling many of their possessions. Although he denied having sold the body parts of any of his victims as contraband meat, Harmon's denial that he had either consumed or sold human flesh would be supported by a medical expert who testified on December 6th that none of the meat found in Harmon's apartment following his arrest was human. When asked to identify photographs of his victims, 
Harmon became taciturn and dismissive as he typically claimed to be unable to recognize any of his victims' photographs. However, in instances where he claimed to be unable to recognize his victims' faces, but the victims' clothing or other personal belongings had been found in his possession, he would simply shrug and make comments to the effect of, I probably killed him or charge it to me, it's all right with me. For example, when asked to identify a photograph of victim Alfred Hallgrief, Harmon stated, I certainly assume I killed him, but I don't remember his face. Numerous exhibits were introduced into evidence in the opening days of the trial, including 285 sections of the skeletal structure, particularly skulls and thigh bones, recovered from the Lena River and forensically determined as belonging to young men under 20 years of age, which had been retrieved from the Lena River, the bucket into which he stored and transported human remains, and the extensively blood-stained camp bed upon which he had killed many of his victims at his Road Rhine address. As had been the case when earlier asked whether he could recognize the photographs of any of his victims, Herman's demeanor became dismissive upon the introduction of these exhibits. He denied any of the skulls introduced into evidence belonging to his victims, stating he had almost invariably mashed the victims' skulls and had thrown only one undamaged skull into the river. Several acquaintances and criminal associates of Harmon testified for the prosecution, including former neighbors, who testified to having purchased brawn or mince from Harmon, whom they noted regularly left his apartment with packages of meat, but rarely arrived with them. Harmon's landlady, Elizabeth Ingle, testified that Harmon would regularly pour chopped pieces of meat into boiling water and would strain fat from meat Harmon claimed was pork. This fat would invariably be poured into bottles. On one occasion, in April 1924, Harmon's landlady and her family became ill after eating sausages in skins Harmon claimed were sheep's intestines. Another neighbor testified to the alarming number of youths whom he had seen entering Harmon's apartment, but whom he seldom observed leaving the address. This neighbor assumed Harmon was selling youths to the Foreign Legion. Another neighbor testified to having observed Harmon throw a sack of bones into the Lena River. Two female acquaintances of Hans Grounds also testified how, on one occasion in 1923, they discovered what they believed to be a human mouth boiling in a soup kettle in Harmon's apartment. These witnesses testified they had taken the item to Hanover police, who simply replied, the piece of flesh may be a pig snout. By the second week of the trial, testimony was introduced about how much the police knew about Harmon's criminal activities after his 1918 release from prison. The police apparently never suspected him for any of these cases of missing boys and young men in Hanover, even though some of the victims were last seen in his company, and he had a long criminal record that included charges of sexual assault and battery. The trial lasted barely two weeks, and a total of 190 witnesses testified. On December 19, 1924, court reconvened to impose sentence upon both defendants. Judged sane and accountable for his actions, Harmon was found guilty of 24 of the 27 murders and sentenced to death by beheading. He was acquitted of three murders, which he denied committing. Upon hearing the sentence, Harmon stood before the court and proclaimed, I accept the verdict fully and freely, before adding, I shall go to the decapitating block joyfully and happily. Grounds became hysterical upon hearing he had been found guilty of incitement to murder and sentenced to death by beheading in relation to the murder of victim Adolf Hanapple. With an additional sentence of 12 years imprisonment imposed for being an accessory to murder in the case of victim Fritz Wittig, upon returning to his cell after hearing the verdict, 
grounds collapsed. In the case of Hannibal, several witnesses testified to having seen grounds in the company of Harmon pointing towards the youth. Harmon claimed this was one of two murders committed upon the insistence of grounds, and for this reason, grounds was sentenced to death. In the case of Wittig, police found a handwritten note from Harmon, dated the day of Wittig's disappearance, and signed by both him and Granz, in which Granz agreed to pay Harmon 20 gold marks for the youth's suit. As the note stated, it indicated Granz's possible knowledge in the disappearance of Wittig. He was convicted of being an accomplice to Harmon in this murder, and sentenced to 12 years imprisonment. Condemn me to death. I ask only for justice. I am not mad. Make it short. Make it soon. Deliver me from this life, which is a torment. I will not petition for mercy, nor will I appeal. I want to pass just one more merry night in my cell, with coffee, cheese, and cigars, after which I will curse my father and go to my execution as if it were a wedding. Fritz Harmon was addressing the court prior to his sentencing. Harmon made no appeal against the verdict, claiming his death would atone for his crimes and stating that, were he at liberty, he would likely kill again. Granz did lodge an appeal against his sentence, although his appeal was rejected on February 6, 1925. At six o'clock in the morning of April 15, 1925, Fritz Harmon was beheaded by guillotine in the grounds of Hanover Prison. His executioner was Karl Groppler. In accordance with German tradition, Harmon was not informed of his execution date until the prior evening. Upon receipt of the news, he observed prayer with his pastor before being granted his final wishes of an expensive cigar to smoke and a Brazilian coffee to drink in his cell. No members of the press were permitted to witness the execution, and the event was seen only by a handful of witnesses. According to published reports, although Harmon was pale and nervous, he maintained a sense of bravado as he walked to the guillotine. The last words Harmon spoke were, I am guilty, gentlemen, but hard though it may be, I want to die as a man. Immediately prior to placing his head upon the execution apparatus, Harmon added, I repent, but I do not fear death. The true tally of Harmon's victims will never be known. Following his arrest, Harmon made several imprecise statements regarding both the actual number of his victims he killed and when he began killing. Initially, Harmon claimed to have killed maybe 30, maybe 40 victims. Later, he would claim the true number of victims he had killed was between 50 and 70. Harmon was acquitted of three murders at his trial, those of Adolf Heinz, Hermann Wolf, and Hermann Bach. In each instance, strong circumstantial evidence existed attesting to his guilt. In the case of Hermann Wolf, police established that prior to the youth's disappearance, he had informed his father he had a converse, conversed with a detective at Hanover Station. Harmon is known to have given many of Wolf's clothes to his landlady in the days immediately following his 44th birthday, shortly after Wolf was reported missing. The youth's distinctive belt buckle was found at Harmon's address. Harmon only chose to deny this murder midway through his trial, following heated threats made against him by the father of the murdered youth. Harmon was acquitted of the murder of Adolf Heinz due to conflicting testimony regarding the circumstances as to whether he or Granz actually murdered the youth. Although Harmon admitted at his trial to having dismembered Heinz's body, he claimed to have returned to his apartment and found a dead body lying there, to which he claimed Granz simply replied, one of yours. Granz would deny this claim and would state that he had bought Heinz's distinctive coat from Harmon for eight marks ever after having been warned the coat was stolen. Due to this conflicting testimony and the lack of an actual witness to the murder, neither Harmon nor Granz were convicted of Heinz's murder. 
In the case of Herman Bach, several friends of his testified at Harmon's trial that prior to Harmon's arrest, they were actively dissuaded from filing a missing persons report upon the youth with police. These witnesses testified that Harmon was insistent on filing the report himself, which he had never done. Other witnesses testified to having acquired various personal possessions belonging to the youth from Harmon. In addition, a tailor testified at Harmon's trial to having been asked by Harmon to alter the suit. Harmon repeatedly contradicted himself regarding his claims as to how he acquired the youth's possessions. It is likely that Harmon chose to deny this murder due to evidence suggesting the murder had been premeditated, as opposed to being committed in the throes of passion. He had known the youth for several years prior to his murder, and Bach was known to be heterosexual. Due to his denial of having committed this particular murder, Harmon was acquitted. Following Harmon's execution, sections of his brain were removed for forensic analysis. An examination of slices of Harmon's brain revealed traces of meningitis, although no sections of Harmon's brain were permanently preserved. Nonetheless, Harmon's head was preserved in formaldehyde and remained in the possession of the Gotten Medical School from 1925 until 2014 when it was cremated. The remains of Harmon's victims, which had been recovered, were buried together in a communal grave in Stockner Cemetery in February 1925. In April 1928, a large granite memorial in the form of typetic, inscribed with the names and ages of the victims, was erected over a communal grave. The discovery of a letter from Harmon declaring Hans Granz's innocence subsequently led to Granz receiving a second trial. This letter was dated the 5th of February 1925 and was addressed to the father of Granz. In this letter, Harmon claimed that although he had been frustrated at having been seen as little more than a meal ticket by Granz, Granz had absolutely no idea that I killed. Furthermore, Harmon claimed that many of his accusations against Granz prior to his trial were obtained under extreme duress, and that he falsely accused Granz of instigating the murders of Hannibal and Weitzel as a means of revenge. Harmon claimed that his pastor would be informed as to the contents of the authenticity of the letter. Hans Granz was retried in January 1926. He was charged with aiding and abetting Harmon in the murder of victims Adolf Hannibal and Fritz Wittig, although Granz stated in one address to the judge at his second trial that he expected to be acquitted. On January 19th, he was again found guilty of aiding and abetting Harmon in both cases. Although, in this instance, he was sentenced to two concurrent 12-year sentences after serving his 12-year sentence, Grounds was extra-legally interned in Schass, I'm going to say this very wrong, Sachsenhausen concentration camp. Following the conclusion of the Second World War, he continued to live in Hanover until his death in 1975. The murders committed by Harmon stirred much discussion in Germany regarding methods used in police investigation, the treatment of mentally ill offenders, and the validity of the death penalty. However, the most heated topic of discussion in relation to the murders committed by Harmon were issues relating to the subject of homosexuality, which was then illegal and punishable by imprisonment in Germany. The discovery of the murders subsequently stirred a wave of homophobia throughout Germany, with one historian noting, it split the gay rights movements and irreparably fed every prejudice against homosexuality and provided new fodder for conservative adversaries of legal sex reform. And that is Fritz Harman, the Vampire of Hanover.
And before you go, we just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder, please. If you do like the show, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review. And if you have any stories to send to us, our email is champagneandmurderplease at gmail.com. Bye.